Scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures, and especially for Paul's letter to the Colossians. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may you freshly impress upon us the truth that is here regarding your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, using your word as you have promised to direct our faith and life for further growth and maturity, to the glory and praise of your name, now and forever. Amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, quoting Jonathan Edwards, suggested that the main benefit obtained by preaching is by an impression made upon the mind at the time and not by an effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. And though a later remembering of what was heard in a sermon is often very profitable, yet for the most part that remembrance is from an impression the words made on the heart at the time. And the memory profits as it renews and increases that impression. The business of preaching is not only to give information. The business of preaching is to make such knowledge live. And so strongly did Lloyd-Jones believe this, that he actually discouraged the habit of note-taking, not wanting his congregants to miss a point while they were writing down what had just been said. Whether or not we have to go that far can certainly be debated, and since there's a page for sermon notes provided each week, then that certainly reveals that we recognize the benefit of note-taking for some. But this idea of preaching as creating or making an impression, a point we've considered in the past, is worth coming back to in light of Paul's letter to the Colossians. While we might not consider this epistle a sermon in a technical sense, Nevertheless, Paul is certainly seeking to make an impression upon the believers of this small-town church. In particular, he wants them to be clear as to who they are in Christ and the life of maturity to which they're called as a result, not giving themselves over to competing voices, traditions, powers, etc. The sufficiency of Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord has been approached from multiple directions, even as Paul continues to build and present his case to the Colossian church of the exclusivity and sufficiency of the gospel. 
Nothing in addition to Christ is needed. And those who've been baptized have been ushered into the new life that has come on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. Throughout verses 6 through 15, we've noted the repetition of the phrase in him or with him occurring some nine times, five of which were in our text for consideration last week in verses 9 through 12. And today, as we give ourselves to the study of verses 13 to 15, recall that verses 14 and 15 form the center point for a larger chiastic structure, an ABBA pattern, that stretches from verses 6 through 23, as Paul essentially comes to the conclusion of the indicative portion of his letter, where he's primarily imparting information, and then moves into the imperative section, the commands and application. And in these three verses, verses 13 to 15, we encounter what may be one of the most powerful images in all of Scripture and the victory announcement of Christ presented in such a way that it leaves an indelible impression, one which you may carry with you for the rest of your life. You see, we do well to recognize that one of the things that Paul is doing, one of the things that he's seeking to to convey to the Colossians as that they're part of a, of a new story that's being told and the place they have in it. Stories have a certain power. Narrative has a force because it's how God made the world, even as the vast majority of the Bible consists of stories. And Jesus employed stories throughout his ministry. As N.T. Wright observes, stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They've invited people to see themselves in this light and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word? So let's enter again into this story, this cosmos-changing story, which Paul is telling to the Colossians and us. And let's pick up Paul's thought from verses 11 to 12 that lead us into verse 13 and following. In verse 11, Paul speaks of the crucifixion of Christ via the metaphor of circumcision. He's talking about the death of Christ in the language of stripping off of the body of the flesh and says that constitutes the Colossians' circumcision which means circumcision according to the Judaizers or even according to the Old Testament law is no longer necessary. Then in verse 12, Paul moves from death to burial, even noting that we are buried with Christ by virtue of baptism. But then says, in whom also you were raised through the faith, the working of God, the one having raised him out of the dead. Because they're in union with Christ, there's a real sense in which believers are already resurrected with Jesus that were ushered into the new life to be lived in him, even though faith also looks to the resurrection at the last. This is an application of Paul's already and not yet theology. But if what Paul has said isn't already marvelous enough, he continues in verse 13, and you being dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What's Paul describing? He's describing their previous condition in sin apart from Christ, their condition in Adam, in their flesh the nature inherited from their first father. And once again, he employs a participle describing what was their ongoing state of existence, what was their present state of being. 
Interestingly enough, Paul doesn't shy away from using the very Jewish language of uncircumcision as a way of speaking of their spiritual alienation from God and his covenant of grace. Yes, these Colossians were Gentiles. They weren't Jews who had the advantages of God's word being directly conveyed to them. We hear a similar pattern in Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he tells them at the beginning of chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then later in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So the Colossian church was in this uncircumcised state. But as Paul relayed in verse 11 of our text, that's now changed as they've been circumcised via the death of Christ. So he reminds them of their previous condition and then declares, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all the trespasses. First of all, note again God's agency in salvation. He made you alive. You know, what was their previous condition? They were dead. And what can dead men do? Tell no tales. That was the favorite answer of my class from a couple of years ago when I'd asked them that question in, in our discussions, citing the title from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie from 2017. Or we can also answer the question as nothing Dead men can do nothing. This continues Paul's point from verse 12. As God raised Jesus from the dead, so he raised these Colossian saints. They've been made alive together with Jesus. God is the life giver. And if we want to be even more specific, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, just as we confess each week in the Nicene Creed. Second, notice what is probably an obvious point, that the trespasses in which they were dead at the beginning of the verse, Paul says, have now all been forgiven. Paul uses the same word two times in the verse, which means trespasses, transgressions, or can even be rendered sins, but has the idea of faults or offenses against God. And appreciate how Paul includes himself with them as those who've been forgiven. These Colossians, these Gentile Christians... And so has Paul, the apostle, a Jewish Christian. Of course, as, as far as Paul is concerned, the Jew-Gentile distinction doesn't matter. But what's significant is the state of forgiveness in which they now live and move and have their being. Now, the term that Paul uses for having forgiven certainly carries the idea of forgiveness, but also conveys the ideas to, to freely give, uh, grant, to show oneself as gracious kind or benevolent, to give graciously. It's the same verb that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 7 when he was at the home of Simon the Pharisee and a woman who was a sinner came and stood at Jesus' feet weeping and wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed them and then anointed them. And Simon wondered to himself that if Jesus were really a prophet then he'd know what kind of woman was touching him. Jesus answers, Simon's thoughts and tells him a story. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. 
And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And maybe with that story in mind, that helps us capture a bit more of the context of forgiveness here in Colossians 2. And let's not overlook or take for granted another significant detail when Paul says that all the trespasses have been forgiven. And all means all. And it's this kind of truth, this kind of statement that, well, becomes like steel in the soul of believers and helps them to fend off the charges of the accuser or even the accusing voices from within. And when our still sinful selves would have us dredge up old sins which have been forgiven. The bones of those old sins need to stay buried. Don't dig them up again. And it's for faith to recognize and to take heart, take to heart the reality of all sins having been forgiven. And how can the forgiveness be so complete? Well, on account of the perfect sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Remember, as Paul has been contending all along, nothing needs to be added to Christ and certainly nothing man-made can be added to render forgiveness. God died on the cross in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What can possibly be added to that perfect sacrifice? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And to turn to the traditions of man, to follow after the empty deceits or old order or powers, is to cheapen what Christ accomplished, to despise what God has done, and displays a lack of gratitude for the reconciliation that has been rendered in Jesus. Well, the benevolence of God displayed in the forgiveness of our offenses against Him is a theme Paul continues in verse 14 when he says, wiping out that which was against us, the handwriting to the dogmas which were contrary to us, and He's taking it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, here we, here we reach the, the center point of the literary structure and arguably of Paul's theology of the whole chapter and section And it has something to do with handwriting. What's Paul talking about here? Well, the word that Paul uses denotes a handwritten document that acknowledged the obligation to pay a debt and would have been signed by the debtor. It acted as a promissory note, a signed certificate of debt in which the signature legalized the debt. It was a bond or an IOU. And Paul is clear to say that it was against us. Once again, he includes himself along with the Colossians. Jews and Gentiles were indebted before God. As one scholar observes, the Jews had contracted to obey the law, and in their case, the penalty for breach of this contract meant death. Paul assumes that the Gentiles were committed through their consciences to similar obligations to the moral law inasmuch as they understood it. Since the obligation had not been discharged by either group, the bond remains against us. The Gentiles weren't without excuse, even as we read about in Romans 1, where Paul even says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul's referring to the death penalty. Capital punishment is rightly established by God's word, which even predates Israel as a nation, having been established with Noah after the flood. Part of the implication of Paul's point is that no one can plead ignorance before God. 
And think for a moment longer about the document to which Paul refers as being against us, contrary to us. That means it's a document of condemnation. What happens to this document of debt? The statement of what is owed. Paul connects this document to the dogmas, the decrees, the rules, the ordinances, the requirements, or even the legal demands. Back to Ephesians 2, the only other place where Paul uses this term, when he writes in verse 15, "...by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, dogmas, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." The debts that Paul is describing, are, that he's describing, have legal backing. They're supported by the law. They're, they're legitimate. They're not made up. And yet in Ephesians, they're abolished. And in Colossians, they're wiped away. How can that be? How is that possible? How is it that the handwriting that's on the document, that's written in the book, is erased? Because of the work of Christ. And don't be disappointed by that answer. It's life and world altering. Since we've grown somewhat accustomed to studying Paul's grammar, let's notice the use of of the verbs here in verse 14. Wiping out. It's a past tense participle. It happened in the past, but you can just picture a hand erasing the words. Has taken. That's in the perfect tense, which means that a present state has resulted from a past action. Nailing. Another past tense participle. It happened in the past, but in your mind's eye, you readily see the hammer in action as this document of accusation is nailed to the tree. And what does it mean that this document was nailed to the cross? It means that it was crucified, that it was put to death. Now, if we let that sink in a bit and try to further grasp the imagery that Paul's using some deep symbolism begins to emerge. There were two things attached to Jesus' cross. First was the placard above his head, and second was Jesus himself. And could it be that there's a sense in which Paul wants us to see that Jesus is that document of the debt of our sins against God? Don't we find a similar idea expressed in 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul is expounding on the ministry of reconciliation that the gospel proclaims, particularly what he details in verses 16 to 21, which overlaps with what he writes here to the Colossians. But in verse 21, he concludes by saying, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on that handwriting that was against us, and because he did, the debt against us doesn't stand. It's been wiped clean, even taken out of the way. And doesn't such a thought renew in us the wonder of salvation and the sheer inexplicability of it? That for as much as we understand what Jesus has done and believe what God's Word says about salvation from sin... Yet there's this this sense that we can't fully explain it and are left almost speechless as a result. If the scriptures didn't tell us so, we might not believe it to be true. But it is. And Paul impresses this reality upon the Colossian church. And notice something here in verses 14 and 15. There are two things that stand opposed. The written code 
and the rulers and authorities. The first God canceled in Christ on the cross. But what about the second? Verse 15. Having disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he disgraced in public, leading them as a prisoner in a victory parade in him. The rulers and authorities have been disarmed, despoiled, stripped, entirely put off. And not only that, but they've been openly disgraced, publicly shamed and exposed. Their power is gone and they've been shown for who and what they really are. And perhaps the deep and striking irony that Paul's presenting doesn't impress us as much as it should. But consider these insights. The rulers and authorities of Rome and of Israel, the best government and the highest religion of the world of that time had ever known, conspired to place Jesus on the cross. These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. And one of the most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross, and one, moreover, which shows in what physical detail Paul could envisage the horrible death that Jesus had died, he declares that on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping them naked, was holding them up to public contempt, and leading them in his own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. When the powers had done their worst, crucifying the Lord of glory incognito on the charge of blasphemy and rebellion, they had overreached themselves. He, neither blasphemer nor rebel, was in fact the rightful sovereign. They thereby exposed themselves for what they were, usurpers of authority, which was properly his. The cross, therefore, becomes the source of hope for all who had been held captive under their rule, enslaved in fear and mutual suspicion. Christ breaks the last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on their behalf. He now welcomes them into a new family in which the ways of the old world have become quite simply out of date, a ragged and defeated rabble. The word that Paul uses rendered, it's rendered triumphing in the ESV and New King James is a term that conveys the idea of a victory parade that the Romans would have celebrated. After an enemy was conquered, the emperor or general riding in his chariot would be at the head of the procession with the army marching behind and those taken as prisoners following along the spoils of war on display. And if the enemy king were among those taken captive, then the climax of the celebration would be reached when he was publicly executed for all the gathered throng to witness the humiliation and defeat of the adversary and magnify the triumph of Rome. But here's Paul saying that very thing happened at the cross, at the crucifixion of Jesus. The final two words of verse 15 can be translated in him, referring to Jesus, and rightly so. But it can also be translated in it, which connects back to the last words, last two words of verse 14, the cross, and they're, they're in the same case. If I had to pick one, then I might lean toward in it, with about 51% support in my thinking. And perhaps we can ask Paul when we get to glory. He may just tell us that it's both, and he was intentionally ambiguous. Nevertheless, the, the, the force of 
the theology holds true, that in Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross, it was as if he was a Roman emperor in his chariot leading the triumphal parade. As one scholar observes, to treat the cross as a moment of triumph was about as huge a reversal of normal values as could be imagined, since crucifixion was itself regarded as the most shameful of deaths. Paul is telling the Colossians, Paul is telling us that Jesus transformed the cross from a sign of defeat into a sign of triumph. Interestingly enough, the only other time this word is used in the New Testament is by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.14 where he writes, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So what's the implication of Paul's uses of the term here? That we, the church, are part of the victory parade. That we've triumphed with Christ. And this reality is part of the message of the gospel that we are to be proclaiming. The fragrance of the knowledge of God that we are to be spreading everywhere we go. In all the various spheres of life in which we live and move. Our message is one of freedom from these rulers and authorities who peddle their message of fear, enslavement, and tyrannical power, even as they're governed by the old order of the flesh that's ruled by sin. But Paul is telling the Colossians, he's telling us, these powers have been completely undone. They've been completely exposed. When you stop and think about it, the folktale, the emperor's new clothes, is the gospel. It's a telling of the undoing of the powers and all their supposed human wisdom. You know the story. No one is willing to admit that the emperor isn't wearing anything at all until a little boy finally pipes up and declares that he's naked. Well, that's a perfect metaphor for God's weakness overcoming human strength, God's folly overcoming human wisdom. And Paul doesn't get tired of relishing in this paradox, and neither should we. In fact, it should further embolden us in our message to the world and even to the rulers of the world. As the church, as those who are in Christ, a phrase weighted with everything that Paul has said throughout his letter to this point, then we shouldn't fear the rulers and authorities, nor should we venerate them in such a way as as though they're somehow our Savior. The state is not, nor any representative thereof, the Messiah. Jesus is, and Jesus alone. As the church, as the body of Christ, we belong to Him and He's the one who governs the cosmos and He's the one who is secured from the threats of these powers even as He rendered them impotent by His death upon the cross. And part of the gospel message that we proclaim, the victory announcement of Jesus that we declare to the governing authorities is that God is God and that Jesus is the Lord. They owe obedience to Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And any authority they have has been delegated to them. Their positions are for the sake of serving others and not serving themselves, even as modeled in Christ an example. And as it's God's way, even as evidenced in all of us, that He makes His enemies His friends, that those who once were in a rebellion against Him become His subjects, that those who are dead he makes alive. So it continues to be true and central to our witness to the world. 
And surely such truths make an impression. Even as Paul would have these realities make a further imprint upon our hearts and lives, that we might continue to mature in Christ and not be taken captive by anyone or anything to believe that there's something more to be gained apart from or in addition to Christ. Now, Paul would have you to see that on the cross, Jesus accomplished all that was necessary for salvation to usher you into the new life in Him, all the obstacles standing the way being removed. Go back and take a look and see. Go back to Good Friday, to God's Friday. And set yourself there before the three crosses outside of Jerusalem on Golgotha and tell me what you can see. Well, there's Jesus upon the center cross and behold above his head a placard reads in Aramaic, Greek and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's what they accused him of. And there you see Jesus naked wearing only a crown of thorns and he's nailed to the cross. But according to Paul... If you look closer still, you'll see that document, that debt to the law, what you know that you owe, enumerating all of the violations, all of the sins against God's Word. There's that long list of sins in thought, word, and deed, the sins you committed in open rebellion against God's Word and those you didn't even give another thought to. All those sins, all those offenses wherein you gave yourself over to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of the hateful words and actions, all of the infidelity, all of the lying and stealing and coveting. They're all on that list. And if you were to get close enough, if you were to make your way up to the foot of the cross, you're certain that you could read the fine print. And so you draw closer. And there you are. And there's the list. But what can't you see? The accusations. They're gone. Inexplicably, they've been wiped away. But then you look again and see that in their place hangs your Savior instead. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, who in your Son, Jesus Christ, has given us a true faith and a true hope. Help us, we pray, to live as those who believe and trust in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection to life everlasting. And strengthen this faith and hope in us all the days of our life. Through the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.